Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold. Confusion stops here. We are now in the season of Advent, and so Happy New Year. We're going to be taking a look today at the Immaculate Conception, which feast is coming up on the 8th of this month. And while we're on the topic of a Marian dogma being celebrated in the Church, we're going to talk about uh, and take a closer look at the role of the Blessed Virgin Mary in the Church's liturgy. And not just the feast days, but how Mary is present in the church's liturgy every day, both the Mass and the office, and how she's even present in the Eucharist. But first, speaking of the liturgy, the season of Advent is upon us. And Advent, of course, comprises the four weeks uh, preceding Christmas. The word Advent means coming and is used by the church to represent the thousands of years of preparation for the coming of the Redeemer. So at the same time, it points us to his second coming, when he shall come again, not in poverty and humility as our Redeemer, but in power and glory and majesty as our judge. So first we're um, preparing to celebrate the, the first coming of the Redeemer liturgically, you know, when the Son of God was conceived by the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary and was made flesh to sanctify the world. And the coming of the Redeemer, of course, was necessary because in Adam all men sinned and needed to be reconciled by God, or reconciled to God by a Redeemer. Uh, as we say, Jesus paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. Now, some people ask if it was possible for just persons under the old law, just people of the old covenant, uh, to be saved before the coming of Christ. And the church's answer is yes, but it's through the expectation of Christ and in anticipation of and through his future merits, all might be saved under the old law who made themselves worthy of the grace of Christ by their innocence and by doing penance, though they could not be admitted to heaven until our Lord's ascension. Hence, Christ descending into hell or descending into the limbus patrum, the limbo of the fathers, or Abraham's bosom, uh, where, where the souls of the just who died before Jesus were assembled there. And uh, in, in the, that limbo of the fathers, limbo meaning edge, it's kind of the edge of hell, if you will, not a hell of the damned, but a, but a place of natural bliss where they waited for the coming of the Messiah so that he would open the gates of heaven. The point is that um, if you make it to heaven, it is because of Christ because Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Not one way, not the preferred way, the way, the only way. Uh, At the same time that we are preparing for Christmas, we're preparing for the second coming. Uh, Christ coming at the end of the world when he will appear in power and majesty to judge the living and the dead. And so the gospel for the first Sunday of Advent, last Sunday, was about the last judgment. And of course, I'm talking about the readings of the gospel um, and the epistles in the extraordinary form, right? The traditional Latin mass, uh, what Saint, or Pope Benedict called the extraordinary form. So the church has appointed the holy season of Advent so that we can consider, first off, the state of the world before the coming of Christ. That's one of those things I think so, so often we don't appreciate how much of what we hold to be good and true, even people who aren't Christians— uh, or aren't religious at all, hold a, a number of things to be true that 
is only because of our Judeo-Christian inheritance, right? So things were, were not so good before Jesus came. And so God sent his only begotten son from heaven for our redemption. And secondly, uh, Advent is so that we can prepare ourselves worthily for Christmas so that Christ would enter our hearts uh, in the fullness of his grace to renew our hearts and to dwell in them. And then thirdly, that we can prepare ourselves for that second Advent so that he may be for us a merciful judge. As our Lord says in Matthew 24, watch ye therefore, because you know not at what hour your Lord will come. Now, we actually talked about the last judgment last week on this program, so I'm not going to go over the readings from the gospel from the first Sunday of Advent. But I should mention that Sunday last was the first day of the ecclesiastical year. Right? On the first Sunday of Advent, uh, the church begins to contemplate the coming of our Savior and with the prophets to long for him. You know, you'll see that in the church's traditional liturgy. You know, in, in the introit of the first Sunday of Advent and the extraordinary form, the, the words of the psalmist are sung, To thee, O Lord, have I lifted up my soul. And the church also during this time exhorts the faithful to true penance, Okay, for contrition for our sins, which oppose Christ's entrance into our hearts. And that, of course, is why the priest wears the violet vestments and why they put the violent altar cloths up. And also uh, at the end, uh, uh, all, at the, well, I'm sorry, with the exception of the third Sunday of Advent, of course, where they wear the rose-colored vestments. We'll talk about that in due course. But, uh, but we're wearing the same kind of vestments as they wear during Lent. In fact, in the Middle Ages, um, Advent was known as the Little Lent because it is a, a penitential time as you prepare for this great feast of Christmas. So uh, the Advent then reminds us of the coming of Christ to judgment so that we can more zealously apply ourselves to profit by his first coming because only those of us will be justified and glorified who have acknowledged and uh, received Jesus Christ as their Redeemer. Therefore, examine yourself right, during these coming weeks and ask yourself, have I really believed in him? Have I really loved him? Have I invited him and admitted him into my heart? Have I kept his commandments? And don't hesitate to, to do penance and good works and start now so that you can await the judgment day of the Lord with confidence. Uh, now, on to the uh, Mass for the Extraordinary Form in this coming Sunday, which is the second Sunday of Advent. Um, having taught us on the first Sunday of Advent to long with the prophets for the redemption through Christ and to be prepared for the last day, the Holy Mass for the second Sunday of Advent reminds us of the joyful promises of God uh, of salvation for the Gentiles and of our Lord's actual coming in order to intensify our desire for it and to produce in us an enthusiasm for preparing our hearts <clears throat> by love and by penance. And for this reason, the church sings in the introit of the Mass for this coming Sunday, People of Zion, behold, the Lord shall come and save the nations, and the Lord shall make the glory of his voice to be heard in the joy of your heart. So the epistle is taken from St. Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 15, verses 4 through 13. Brethren, whatsoever things were written were written for our learning, that through patience and the comfort of the scriptures we might have hope. 
Now the God of patience and of comfort grant you to be of one mind towards one another, according to Jesus Christ, that with one mind and with one mouth you may glorify God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, receive one another, as Christ also hath received you, unto the honor of God. For I say that Christ Jesus was minister of the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, but that the Gentiles are to glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore will I confess to thee, O Lord, among the Gentiles, and will sing to thy name. And again he saith, Rejoice, ye Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and magnify him, all ye peoples. And again, Isaiah saith, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise up to rule the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope and in the power of the Holy Ghost. Wow, what a great letter to the Romans. Now, what are we meant to, to learn by this epistle? Well, first off, that God has called us all, Jew and Gentile, man and woman, slave and free, yes, that we should be grateful to God for having called us by his grace to the true faith and for having received us into the bosom of his holy church. And again, we are taught that, you know, envy, discord, pride, hatred, that's how you lose your salvation. And finally, St. Paul refers us to the scriptures for learning, for instruction, right? So how do we profit from the holy scriptures? Well, St. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that the, the inspired scriptures are there to teach and correct and instruct us in righteousness so that we can serve God faithfully and always be ready and equipped for good works. And we learn from the scriptures the many promises and the example of Jesus Christ and, and, and the saints that through that example, the Bible sustains our patience in suffering and, and bolsters our hope of eternal life. Jesus calls God the God, or St. Paul rather, calls God the God of patience and comfort and hope. And that's because he looks with patience and long-suffering upon our sinful lives. How, how patient has God been with me up to this point? Number two, he gives us grace to carry our cross with patience and joy and removes our despair by spiritual consolation. Number three, because he gives us hope that after this life we'll possess him the object of our desire. And since God is the God of patience, comfort, and hope, only he can fill our hearts with joy and peace and grant that we may become perfect in all good works by faith, hope, and charity, and that we may attain the promised salvation. That's a lot to pack in just a few verses, but... Uh, St. Paul and the Holy Ghost managed it. When we come back, we'll be reading the gospel for this coming Sunday in the Extraordinary Form, the second Sunday of Advent, and talking about John the Baptist and why is it that John the Baptist sent his disciples to ask if Jesus was really the Messiah. Now, there's a lot to that answer and more coming up when we return with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, uh, your internet home for uh, Keep It Simple Catholicism. We're talking about the second Sunday of Advent and the readings in the extraordinary form, which uh, next is the gospel, which is taken from St. Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 10. At that time, when John had heard in prison the works of Christ, sending two of his disciples, he said to him, Art thou he that art to come, or look we for another? And Jesus, making answer, said to them, Go and relate to John what you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead rise again, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he that shall not be scandalized in me. And when they went their way, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What went you out into the desert to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went you out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Behold, they that are clothed in soft garments are in the houses of kings. But what went you out to see? A prophet? Yea, I tell you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my angel before thy face, who shall prepare thy way before thee. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. St. John the Baptist is such an inspiration to us. He really is a saint for our circumstances today. Not the least uh, because he was in prison uh, in the first place, precisely because he had rebuked King Herod. He had uh, uh, dared to point out the moral failings of a political leader, right? He was living in adultery with the wife of his stepbrother. And John's example teaches us that we should not be deterred from our duty, even if it means that suffering is the consequence. Is it not nobler and more profitable to our salvation to be a martyr for the truth, as St. John the Baptist was, rather than to just look on from the sidelines, uh, or, or worse, join in, especially by uh, flattery and, you know, and deceitful flattery because you don't even mean it. Now, why did John send his disciples to Jesus? You know, didn't John know that Jesus was the Messiah? Well, you know, of course he did. It was John the Baptist who pointed out Jesus to uh, his, his future apostles, John and Andrew, by the banks of the Jordan and said, Behold the Lamb of God, behold him who taketh away the sins of the world. Uh, John sent his disciples to Christ to ask him personally if he was the one uh, to come or if uh, they should wait for somebody else. Why? Because he wanted them to be convinced that he was the Messiah from Jesus and not just from his teaching, right? And I think this is a good lesson for parents and for people that teach, um, you know, the faith, that they see that their charges and their children are well instructed in the faith and to try their best to introduce them to Jesus uh, in such a way as to have a personal relationship with him and not just know things about him. So Jesus says to the disciples of John the Baptist, go and relate to John what you've heard and seen, the blind see and the lame walk and the dead are raised and so on. So why? Well, first off, it's because they should have already been convinced by his miracles which were the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies that he was the promised Messiah. He's just pointing out to him, 
are you the Messiah? And it's like, well, let's see. The blind see, the, the deaf hear, the, the, the lame walk, the dead are raised, the gospel's being preached. It's like, you know the prophecies. What do you, who, what do you think? Who do you say that I am? As he would ask uh, uh, later and so famously. So, and then he talks to the crowd and uh, he asks them the questions. What went you out to see? And so what's, what's he on about here? It's, well, first, he's praising the constancy of St. John who was not deterred from doing the work of a prophet, either by the commands of Herod or for fear of imprisonment and death, or, or for fear of the, uh, the uh, scribes and the Pharisees who came out to see him and, and you know, interrogate him about his ministry. Number two, it was to approve the, the life of St. John, which was rather austere. And again, that we would be inspired by that example to mortify ourselves. Right to do to do penance and to, you know, fast and abstain and give alms, and and you know mortify ourselves, crucify our flesh, as Saint Paul says. Uh, why did our Savior say that Saint John was more than a prophet? And the answer is that he was destined to see the Messiah. Saint John the Baptist was the one who was appointed to preach the Messiah to declare Jesus himself to be the Savior of the world. And since he was a messenger of God, and he was there to announce the coming of Christ and to prepare his way, he was called an angel in the prophecy of Malachi. As our Lord himself points out, it was he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my angel before thy face, who shall prepare thy way before thee. And then Jesus adds, Blessed is he that shall not be scandalized in me. So why? Well, it's on account of those who would be scandalized by his humility, his poverty, and especially his shameful suffering and his death on the cross, and who would then accordingly despise him and reject him because they were expecting a conquering hero, you know, and not a, not a meek and humble Jesus. Although considering his infinite dignity, and his just unbelievable condescension to become a man in the first place, really the more he humbled himself on their behalf, the more they ought rather to have loved and honored him because he was doing it for them, for us. Now, on the second, second Sunday of Advent, the church sets before us this gospel in order that we, like the disciples of St. John the Baptist, may, by the words of Jesus Christ and his works, recognize him as our Lord and Savior. And that we may make ourselves worthy of the grace of redemption by doing penance with real sincere contrition and with a firm purpose of amendment and, and by so doing prepare the way of the Lord in our own hearts and our own lives. Now, uh, according to Goffin's explanation of the epistles and gospels, kind of a standard work in English uh, on the Extraordinary Form Liturgy, this Sunday is set aside for instruction on finding consolation in adversities and afflictions. And I have to say, given the situation in the church uh, and in our, the world, our country today, with millions feeling disenfranchised over the elections and million more uh, cut off from the fullness of their own church life and their own church community, this is a topic of some particular relevance, especially you know, considering everything we're facing in the current situation. So the question is, what can and should console us in adversity? 
Well, number one, a firm belief that everything is ordered by God's wise providence and that no evil can befall us except by his permission and, and that he never allows us to suffer more than is for our good. This is what it means to, this is poverty of spirit. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, that's those who accept all the things that happen as coming from the hand of a loving father. It's what uh, Dom Pierre Cassad called uh, divan- abandonment to the divine providence. All right, that's number one. Number two, who can console us in adversity? Well, if we call in our adversities upon God, he will help us whenever it is expedient for our salvation. Remember, salus animatum suprema lex, the salvation of souls is the supreme law. That goes for the church, but it's also true of the actions of God, who says in the scriptures, call on me in the day of trouble and I will deliver thee. That's uh, from Psalm 49. And in uh, the prophecy of Isaiah, from Isaiah 49, it says, can a woman forget her infant so as not to have pity on the son of her womb? And if she should forget, yet will not I forget thee? Behold, I have graven thee in my hands, right? I made you, and I won't forget you. And then St. Paul says in Romans, of course, if God be with us, who is against us? And number three, we uh, can and should look to God for consolation and diversity because it's useless to resist divine providence, right? That's the old story. How do you make God laugh? And the answer is you tell him your plans, okay? Everybody who has ever tried to resist uh, God's providence has been filled with shame and disgrace. So it says in Job, who hath resisted him and hath had peace? Our, and number four, then our sufferings born with patience and submission lose their edge and bring us merit and reward. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, for that which is at present momentary in light of our tribulation worketh for us above measure exceedingly an eternal weight of glory. All right, that was in that was in Dewey Ramsey's. Um, in other words, the comparatively small and temporary trouble that we suffer now is going to bring us a tremendous and an eternal glory that that much outweighs, greatly outweighs our suffering. And that's the theological virtue of hope, and it is based on the gospel of Christ, and that's why they call it good news. And that's no nonsense. So yes, when we are in adversity, we need to turn to our Lord, to turn to the the one person who is the source of joy and peace and consolation. All right, coming up in uh, just a few days, the 8th of December, is the Feast of the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And the Church teaches, and has always taught, that Mary is, uh, was, and is without sin, that she never committed any personal sin, mortal or venial, because if she had, she could not be truly called full of grace, neither would she have been the worthy mother of God. In fact, for her to be truly full of grace and the worthy mother of God, God preserved her from the stain of even original sin, which means that she did not need to be purified from sin as we do through baptism. You know, but somebody might ask, wait, doesn't Mary sing in the Magnificat, um, I rejoice in God, my Savior? Doesn't she need a Savior? Didn't she achieve redemption through the prayer of uh, Christ on the cross? Well, the answer is yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> you know, just as you may save somebody who falls into a ditch by pulling them out, 
you can also save him by keeping him from falling into the ditch in the first place. Hence, God preserved her from original sin. But it is because of the prayer that Jesus would make on the cross that God in advance preserved the Blessed Virgin from the stain of original sin. Again, nobody goes to heaven except through Christ and because of Christ. All right, the privilege of the Blessed Virgin Mary is called the Immaculate Conception. And that means that at her conception, that is from the moment that her soul was created and united with her body, she was immaculate, preserved from the stain of original sin. That's the teaching of the Church. And, of course, uh, famously, it was made a dogma by Pope, um, let's see, oh, one of the piouses. (laughs) But the point is that the the, uh, Immaculate Conception was always taught, always believed by the Church, and then was raised to the level of a dogma so that everybody would know that it is a matter of Catholic faith and an essential belief for entering heaven. And that's no nonsense. Okay, back with lots more when we return right after these messages here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'm Matthew Arnold, and this is No Nonsense Catholic. Okay, talking about the uh, dogma of the Immaculate Conception and a, a, a teaching of the Church, a perennial teaching of the Church that was dogmatized, and I couldn't bring it up, couldn't dredge it out of my memory during the last, pro, uh, uh, last segment here, but it was Pope Pius IX in the year 1854 who proclaimed the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. And why? If it was always a doctrine of the Church, why proclaim the dogma in the 19th century? And the answer is because uh, it was being denied. That's typically what happens. These questions, when when the um, doctrines of the Church are questioned, that's when the Church goes in and starts working on definitions, or when people start making claims about it, a doctrine that go beyond what the Church teaches or contradict what the Church teaches. And so, you know, that's that's the time when it's necessary to make some kind of definitive statement. Okay, well, uh, for our separated brethren, the question might be, you know, what does the Bible have to say about the Immaculate Conception? I don't see anything about it there. But uh, really, the Bible does announce the Immaculate Conception in the book of Genesis. You know, it's where our uh, God says to the devil, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, right? and she shall crush thy head, and thou shalt lie in wait for her heel. Um, the devil caused that first woman who had Eve, who had been created immaculate, without sin, without original sin. He, it was the devil that tempted her and uh, caused her to fall into the first sin. But after that sin happened, and not, not only Eve, but Adam too joined in, but God didn't abandon um, mankind after the fall of our first parents. Rather, he promised them vindication. He announced that in their turn, this woman and her offspring would uh, vanquish the devil. I'll put enmity between thee and the woman. Uh, the New American Bible would say, between your offspring and hers, they shall strike at your heel while you strike at their head. And then the, the book of Revelation, verse 12, or chapter 12, verses 1 through 5, St. John explains that the woman who vanquishes the devil is above all the Blessed Virgin Mary, and that her offspring is above all our Lord Jesus Christ. And I say that because, you know, there, there's a sense in which the woman 
in Revelation is, is the church, and her offspring are the faithful. But then it zeroes in, talks about the woman, you know, specifically who gives birth to him who will rule uh, all the nations, and we know that we're talking about Jesus and Mary. So the Immaculate Conception, one of the four Marian dogmas, and accordingly, a day was set aside for the celebration of this great truth in the church's liturgy, the feast of the Immaculate Conception, which is um, coming up on the 8th of December. And that's what I wanted to talk about. This larger issue is that Mary and her place in the liturgy. And if you're not familiar with the term, liturgy is the public worship of the church, the head and the members. So you have the Holy Mass is the most visible manifestation of uh, that. The, uh, um, but the other sacraments, um, the liturgy of the hours, a.k.a. the divine office, which is the uh, a daily liturgical prayer of the church, official liturgical prayer, the, the, the calendar of the liturgical year, and the, the way time is ordered all throughout the year, and you know the various blessings and sacramentals. These are the church's liturgies. And the liturgy makes present the paschal mystery of Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, most especially, of course, in the Holy Mass and, and the Eucharist. But, but throughout the liturgy, that paschal mystery is made present in a way to enable us to render fitting worship to God and to obtain the graces that Christ won for us all. And so the church renders liturgical devotion to Mary because she's joined uh, in an inseparable bond to the saving work of her son. And note that I, we, I talk about Marian devotion. We don't worship Mary. We render devotion to Mary and the other saints within the context of the worship of God, right? So we honor the saints, we don't adore them. And there are currently 16 different Marian feasts that are celebrated by the church in the United States. Now, there's various ranks for the uh, feasts in the church, and, you know, we have a tendency to call them all feasts, but there's such a thing as a feast with a capital F, uh, which is like a solemnity and is amongst the highest rank, and then there are the, the, the lower ranks. Uh, and the difference in the ranking really has to, just to do with uh, uh, primarily with the elements of the liturgy that accompanies it. So, you know, the proper prayers, how many readings there are, whether or not to recite the Creed and the Gloria, uh, and that sort of thing. I mean, there are some higher-ranking feasts where you would just, if they're uh, celebrated on a weekday, they're celebrated with just the two readings. But if they fall on a Sunday, then they have the, the full Sunday treatment with the three readings and the Creed and the Gloria. Some of them are, are treated like a Sunday no matter when they fall and that sort of thing. So the five Marian feasts of low rank, are, are, which are called optional memorials, are the La- Our Lady of Lords on February 11th, Our Lady of Fatima on October 13th, Our Lady of Mount Carmel on July 16th, the dedication of St. Mary Major, which is a basilica in Rome on the 5th of August, and the Most Holy Name of Mary on September 12th. And there are another five feasts, uh, feasts of moderate rank, which are called obligatory memorials, which are the Immaculate Heart of Mary, which falls on the Saturday after the Solemnity of the Sacred Heart, uh, the Queenship of Mary on August 22nd, Our Lady of Sorrows, September 15th, and Our Lady of the Rosary on October 7th, and finally the Presentation of Mary on November the 21st. And then finally, there are six feasts of um, high rank that are known as feasts, capital F, or solemnities. So the Solemnity of the Motherhood of Mary, which is 
January 1st, and also a holy day of obligation. The Feast of the Visitation, which is May 31st. The Solemnity of the Assumption, 15th of August, that's another uh, holy day of obligation. The Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception, which is coming up on the 8th of December. And the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe, which is also in December, on December the 12th. Okay, and these by the, these these dates and titles, this is all the ordinary form calendar, right? Just the the Novus Ordo calendar. So Mary has an important role in these feasts that are dedicated to her, but also in the feasts of her son. You know, it's like the feast of the Annunciation, for example. That's really that's a feast of Jesus, even though it's about the angel Gabriel coming to Mary. What happens is the incarnation, right? Jesus becomes flesh when Mary uh, gives her fiat to the angel. Or the Feast of the Presentation, right, where Mary and Joseph take our Lord to the temple to present him and, and others. Now, and aside from those special feasts, there are other ways of showing liturgical devotion to Mary. For example, she's mentioned in the ordinary of the Mass, right? She's mentioned every day in the introductory rites in the Confidier. And she's mentioned in the Liturgy of the Word at the Nicene Creed on those days when it's recited. And at every single Mass, in the, uh, in the Roman canon and the other optional Eucharistic prayers. Every Eucharistic prayer specifically mentions the Blessed Virgin Mary. And then there are six formulas of what they call the common of the Mass uh, that can be used at different times that are Marian in nature. So Saturday, also special to the Blessed Virgin Mary during ordinary time, which is, say, outside of Advent or Christmas or Lent or Easter, and many of the Saturdays of Ordinary Time are open days, which means that they are days when there isn't a, a you know, a more, uh, a higher ranking, you know, feast or whatever to be celebrated. And so the Mass of the Virgin Mary can be celebrated on any, any Saturday when you're not obliged to, to say another Mass. The Mass of the Blessed Virgin, you know, those special prayers and hymns and so forth. And of course, we often hear uh, Marian hymns during... Saturday Mass, anyhow, right? For those of you that are blessed to have a choir that sings on Saturday. Or even congregational singing. Of course, the entire month of May is dedicated to Mary, and many churches have, you know, daily recitation of the rosary or some other prayers in honor of Mary. And of course, uh, May crownings, which some of you may remember from when you were kids, when the uh, priests would come out and crown a, a statue of the Blessed Virgin Mary, usually with a crown of flowers. And that, you know, I mean, it can be just a simple ceremony, but it also has its own specific liturgy. The latest version uh, approved by St. John Paul II back in the 80s. Pardon me. So Mary is especially present in the celebration of the Holy Mass and in the celebration of the Eucharist. Pardon me. I seem to have uh, got a little cough here. I hope I haven't uh, become one of the walking wounded. <clears throat> Pardon me, what with the uh, kind of nasty head cold that's going around the office here. Anyway, uh, Mary's especially present in the celebration of the Eucharist because she cooperated in a singular way, in a unique way, with the Savior's work of restoring grace to souls. <clears throat> and she is the mother of us all in the order of grace. And in light of that close connection with Christ and us, you know, Mary couldn't be absent from our celebration of the Eucharist. Now, 
her presence, when I, when I say the presence of Mary in the Eucharist, obviously this is not to be confused with the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, you know, the Christ of glory <clears throat> in the act of his sacrifice under the appearance of bread and wine with his body, blood, soul, and divinity. Nothing of the kind is true in Mary's humanity. But Mary is present in the risen Christ who took from her his body and blood which are offered in the Eucharistic sacrifice. And Mary is present because she was associated with her son in the work of salvation that's being represented in the Eucharist. Mary's president, in the, especially in the capacity of model and our intercessor and our mother. And lastly, we come to the benefits of liturgical devotion to Mary. <clears throat> you know, when we, when we show devotion to Mary, we honor and praise God the Father for the wisdom of his designs that are manifest in her. And, and through liturgical devotion to Mary, we get to know and love better Jesus Christ, her Son, and, of course, the Son of God, and God the Son. And we acknowledge and proclaim the action of the Holy Spirit in Mary and in the Church. So each Marian liturgical celebration is intended to give us a better understanding of Mary's part in our salvation, and in that way becomes a, a, a catechesis of Mary, so that as the liturgy honors the Blessed Virgin over the course of a year, the mysteries of Christ become present to us in their relationship with Mary, our model, our queen, and our mother. And that is no nonsense. Okay, when we come back, we're going to the question box and taking a look at some of the uh, things that folks have sent me via email and uh, my answers to their queries. So stay tuned for that. We'll be right back. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic, your internet home for uh, no buts Catholicism. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. Good to have you with us. <clears throat> and as promised, we're going to spend this last segment uh, dipping into the question box, taking a look at some of the things that uh, folks have sent me and the way that I have replied. Now, this one I think might be interesting to some folks uh, because I actually had to do a little bit of research to be able to answer it. So I always like when that happens. And the question is, why is A.D. Anno Domini in Latin? Is it Latin? But B.C. is in English. Did English even exist back then? What are the real abbreviations historically from that time period? Okay, well, the designation Anno Domini is Latin for the year of our Lord. And the custom of dating the current year from the incarnation of Christ was introduced in Rome by Abbot Dionysius Exiguus in the year 520 A.D., Prior to that time, the Roman calendar counted the years from the foundation of the city of Rome. So 525 A.D. was like 745 from the, uh, from the foundation of Rome. <clears throat> and at the time, um, the Romans, that, that particular period of time in 525 was, was called the era, era of Diocletian. And Diocletian had been a, a violent persecutor of Christians. And so Abbot uh, Dennis decided that it would be a good thing to uh, you know, figure out a way of dating that didn't uh, do any honor to the city of Rome or the Roman emperors. And, and so that was uh, where A.D. comes from, A.D., the year of our Lord. And uh, now it took centuries for 
AD to become common usage all throughout Christendom because people, for one thing, outside of the city of Rome, people didn't all use the Roman calendar. They had their own uh, ways of, of deciding what the date was or what the year was. So it took time, like I say, for it to spread throughout Europe, throughout Christendom. And the custom reached England in the 8th century, and that's when the Venerable Bede was writing the ecclesiastical history of the English people. And he used that AD designation in his history. But feeling the need to, uh, for a way to distinguish the years before the Incarnation, it was the Venerable Bede who introduced the designation B.C. before Christ, which explains why B.C. is an English abbreviation. <clears throat> okay, so today some scholars would prefer to use C.E. and B.C.E., uh, standing for Common Era and Before Common Era, respectively, and presumably because they don't want to mark time from the incarnation of Christ. But the fact remains that it is precisely Christianity that makes this the Common Era. So uh, that's A.D. and B.C. Uh, I also have, I have a friend who is a deacon who writes to me from time to time, uh, and uh, he, he will forward me sometimes uh, emails that he receives just to ask me how I would respond to them. And I got one not long back from a certain Mr. Jones that's just a, a grand compendium of nonsense, uh, <laughs> nonsensical but all too common uh, arguments against religion and religious belief. And so I'm going to share it with you now. He says, <clears throat> this is Mr. Jones, if there is a God, it is more likely a force that powers everything, including the air we breathe. As a result, no one could know what God looks like because God doesn't look like anything we could recognize. That doesn't actually follow, but okay. In this context, there's nobody behind the curtain. What our lives become is all about what we experience, imagine, and believe. Breathing reality, breathing reality, breathing reality with all its light and darkness is spectacular to experience and humans should learn to live and let live. Again, that's a non-sequitur. It doesn't exactly follow, but okay. Uh, the God I believe in, okay, we've gone from if there's a God to I believe in a God, but the God I believe in has better things to do than listen to voodoo-like chants, hoping to ward off the inevitable from otherwise intelligent creatures. Believe what you like, but please keep it to yourself until you meet up with your cult or congregation. I believe that we are born to live and not to spend our time worshiping something we can't possibly understand. Think about it. If paradise is like Sacramento in the summer, 85 degrees and sunny every day, it'd get pretty monotonous after a few centuries. Okay, that's, I guess that was his big <clears throat> final point. It's like, what an amazing uh, collection of nonsense. And this letter obviously makes a lot of unsantiated claims and assertions. And so uh, on behalf of my friend, I just went through them one by one. He starts by saying, if there is a God, it is, it is more likely a force that powers everything, including the air we breathe. It's like, really? More like a force. More likely a force. And where do you get that from? You know, who says? Because on the contrary, uh, the existence of a personal God is frankly self-evident. It's self-evident that nothing comes from nothing. Therefore, someone must have always existed who had the power to bring everything else into existence. That is, God. And God must have been an eternal someone and not a something, not an it or a force, because it's also self-evident that you can't give what you don't have. And since human beings are personal beings and we possess intellect and will, 
then God must also be a personal being in order to have endowed us with those qualities. This, by the way, does not require religious faith. It's simply the exercise of our God-given reason. As a result, he says, no one could know what God looks like because God doesn't look like anything we could recognize. In this context, there's nobody behind the curtain. Well, since God is a personal being, it only stands to reason that uh, he has the ability to reveal himself in a way that is intelligible to us. That's the whole story of salvation history. It's not that we're trying to figure out God, but that God reveals himself. The fullness of revelation is Jesus Christ, who said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So in this context, there is someone behind the curtain. He says, what our lives become is all about what we experience, imagine, and believe. Well, I'm not sure I understand the point of that observation, that it's impossible to experience or believe in God or that our lives would be better if we don't experience or believe in God, or, or that it's all imagination. Uh, breathing, breathing reality, whatever that might mean, with all its light and darkness, is spectacular to experience, and humans should learn to live and let live. Now, <clears throat> again, that's a non-sequitur, but Christianity is precisely about living in reality. All of it, which includes the existence of God and everything that follows, like the objective moral order. See, the question that Mr. Jones needs to answer is, in a world without a absolute moral standard, in a word without, world without God, by what authority does Mr. Jones make the statement that anyone should do anything? Why should humans live and let live, as he asserts? See, like many concepts that, that Western people take for granted, respecting the rights of others without exception, that's part of our culture's Judeo-Christian inheritance. The God that now he goes on to the God that he believes in. The God that I believe in has better things to do than listen to voodoo-like chants hoping to ward off the inevitable from otherwise intelligent creatures. Well, that's a caricature of religious faith and not a valid argument. You know, I wonder if the God that he believes in, what, what does he do other than run the universe like a big battery? Clearly, the God of Mr. Jones uh, represents his own attempt to understand God apart from revelation and the dictates of reason. In other words... Mr. Jones's God is a figment of his imagination. Believe what you like, he says, but keep it to yourself. Okay, like, like you're doing, I guess, Mr. Jones. <laughs> Christianity is about a relationship with the living God, and we agree that it shouldn't be imposed on people. And if Mr. Jones is not interested, that's fine. But Christians have a responsibility to give him the chance at that relationship because we believe that it is the source of meaning and purpose, and joy in this life, as well as the source of eternal happiness. And that's not something we want to keep to ourselves. He says, I, was, I believe that we we're born to live and not spend our time worshiping something we can't possibly understand. Well, this is a false dichotomy. It's certainly possible to live and worship God. In fact, we would argue that it's not possible to live in the fullest sense uh, of the term without worshiping God. Through the sacraments of the Catholic Church, we become subjects of the kingdom of Christ, a kingdom that is in the world but not of the world. And being a subject of that kingdom gives life meaning and purpose through our freely giving love, service, justice, and respect to God first and to others, regardless of our circumstances. It also offers the hope of eternal beatitude. That much we can understand. He closes by saying, think about it. If paradise is like Sacramento in the summer, 85 degrees and sunny every day, it'd get pretty monotonous after a few centuries. Well, once again, Mr. Jones has set up a straw man. 
Christians don't hope for some early earthly paradise like the pagans of old, but everlasting beatitude, eternity in the presence of the living God. Adam and Eve lived in an earthly paradise, but their destiny was eternal beatitude. St. Paul was given a, a glimpse of this state of being, but he didn't describe it as Sacramento in the summer. Rather, he said, Eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man what things God has prepared for them that love him. Now, Mr. Jones is right. An earthly paradise will not satisfy, but that's not what Christians hope for. Not at all. You know, like so many uh, modern people before him, Mr. Jones has obviously not tried Christianity and found it wanting, as G.K. Chesterton said, but rather found it difficult and left it untried. And he seems uh, completely ignorant of the fa- even the most basic understanding of the Christian faith. And he's certainly free to reject Christ, but it's only possible if he first encounters him. And that's no nonsense. Um, <laughs> Richie just passed me a note. He says, talking about uh, Christians need to keep our opinions to ourselves. He says, I can't help but notice that he tells you what he thinks. <laughs> it tells you to keep it to yourself and then tells you what his opinion is. Yeah, there's, there's a fair amount of that going around as well, and that is a, uh, with what we would call hypocrisy. The point is that uh, um, there's an awful lot of people out there who don't know what they believe and are uh, apparently willing to go to the mat you know, to, to defend the fact that they don't believe anything. So it is really up to us, friends, you and I, to be able to articulate in, in what I hope is a, a simple and straightforward way the things that the church does teach. And the fact that what the church offers to us is a, a gift that is not only, not only is it a gift and not something you can earn, but it's, it's beyond price, it's beyond value, it is the key to, to joy and happiness and peace with uh, God, with ourselves, with each other. And you know what? It doesn't matter what's going on in the church or the world. That relationship with Christ is available to you right now. And that is also no nonsense. Well, we have come to the end of yet another program. I am always amazed at how quickly the time goes. And I know sometimes that uh, we get on these big topics and and, uh, I get going. It's kind of like putting a uh, a fire hose through a funnel, (laughs) if you will, as far as the information is concerned. But you know what? You can always go to our app, the Virgin Most Powerful app, you can uh, download that on your smartphone for free. You can go to vmpr.org and access the podcasts, the uh, audio recordings of the show. And you can go to Virgin Most Powerful Radio's YouTube channel. And uh, No Nonsense Catholic has its own playlist. So you can go and check out the shows there on the YouTube video. Hey, till next time, thank you so much for being with us. May God richly bless you and your family. <laughs>